is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Country Hour. Warwick Long back in the chair with you for this week. Great to have you company today. We'll have a look at animal welfare legislation that has been released for comment over the next few months. The timing of it has taken the group, the Victorian Farmers Federation, by great surprise. We'll talk through some of those details shortly for you on the project on the program. Also, Sunrise has been making a bit of money if it's third good year in a row. And how do you feel the Murray-Darling debate, particularly also debate just around water in general, are discussed in the media. We'll hear from one group that has been looking at just that and a whole lot more today on The Country. You can send us a text 0467 842 Right now, though, let's get some rural news today with Jane McNaughton. Jane. Good afternoon, Warwick. Welcome back. The Northern Territory's first cotton gin has been officially opened north of Catherine. The gin costs about $70 million to build and means that Northern Territory growers will no longer have to transport their crop thousands of kilometres to Queensland for processing. The gin is being operated by local company Want Cotton in partnership with global cotton giant Louis Dreyfus. David Connolly is Want Cotton Director and President of the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association. This is the newest facility in Australia. It's, it's brand spanking new. We started it off as a second-hand facility of an old second-hand gin that, that we bought. We bought you know, a whole heap of um, gear out of a, out of a second-hand gin um, really what we're after there was the press so we've got a, we've got a very uh, good reconditioned press but the rest of it we decided that we'd go and buy new our partner, Louis Dreyfus Company who will be operating this uh, in partnership with us uh, under the name of Northern Cotton, they talked us into buying all new equipment and making the gin bigger than what our plans were at the start because they could see the industry growing before them and really the gin would have been, that we, that we started off to build, would have been at capacity by the time we'd finished building it so we needed, it's like building a bridge that can only handle one lane of traffic. By the time you finish it, you need two lanes of traffic. So we, we acquiesced and um, we, we've built the gin to a larger capacity. And What is the capacity? The capacity is 50 bales per hour. So the capacity actually works out at how many hours you want to put in. Mm. You know, we'll do 150,000 bales, no trouble at all in a season if that's what we need to do. Water sales for the much-hyped Tamer Irrigation Scheme have been relaunched today in Tasmania. The 10,000 megalitre scheme will be piped from the Trevelyn Dam to the east and west Tamer and is half of its original footprint. Chair of the Tamer Irrigation Committee, Ed Archer, explains what the scheme means for farmers. It's been a fairly long process. Um, you know, I think it's probably three or four years now that we've been together talking about this project as a, as a committee. Uh, with TI, unfortunately, you know, about two, it must be close to two years ago, 18 months ago, we went to water sales um, and didn't get enough enough demand, unfortunately, to, to get to the the minimum threshold to, to move forward with the, with the scheme. So on the back of that now, there's been a redesign and, and we're doing, I guess you could say, this is one last effort to get water sales up to the level that it needs to be to, to get the scheme going, going ahead. The Australian wool market has closed out for the 2023 calendar year strongly, recording a second successive increase in the series, one of the best sales of the financial year. 
Sales now head into the annual three-week Christmas recess, resuming in week 28 on Monday the 8th of January. This time last year, the AMI was softer by 11.3%. It's currently sitting at 1,212 cents. Looking at the year 2023, District Wool Manager for Elders Bansdale, Maddie Gallagher, said it's been a fairly good year for the market with volume up and increases on exports. We've had an additional 66,529 bales offered this year, so that brings us to a total of 868,711 bales for the year, which is huge. Um, this equates to 101.7 million kilos of wool, and a turnover of $1,087 million. And that's only about $1,000 down on um, the previous year. So we're pretty much on par um, with the previous year. We had some pretty big news events through the year. Obviously, the Australian-Indian Free Trade Agreement, which removed all tariffs on raw Aussie wool. This uh, was in place for the first half of the year. And over that uh, 2021, 22-23 financial year, and we already increased our wool exports to India by 3 million kilos. And when you drive around our country roads at Christmas time, there's always a decorated mailbox or a hay bale to put a smile on your face. Well, along the Orange Grove Road near Gundah in northern New South Wales, some farming kids have started a new tradition building wooden Christmas trees to put along the road. It was born out of the 2022 floods. Now let's meet some of the little people spreading some extra joy to their neighbours. My name is Rosie Galton. My name is Pippa Galton. My name is Elsie Groves. My name is Grace Groves. And who have you got beside you, Grace? And Alice is beside me. Prue Galton. Kate Groves. My mum is part of the wood turners here in Gunnedah and one of their jobs was to collect and clean out a shed Uh, from a deceased estate so she got a heap of wood it was all going to go to the tip and instead she brought it out to our house in order to make Christmas trees as a family however the floods did get in the way and we had quite a few families staying with us over the floods and we needed a project to keep everybody busy so we created lots of trees to share around the neighborhood with our neighbors How has it grown in that, well, this is year two now? We collected all the trees back from a majority of the neighbours that we distributed to last year, stored them all, all the Christmas lights, and we've redistributed them as far as we could um, from our farm and our neighbouring farm um, to the north and the south of us. And we've also put on extra lights and we've found extra solar bits and pieces and decorations as well to try and make our road as Christmassy as possible. And Warwick, that's today's Rural News. Oh, that's lovely. Thanks very much for that. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. If you're out and about, if you're somewhere in regional Victoria and you've got a great little display going on Christmas-wise, you know I love to see this kind of stuff. And you know you can send me photos now on our text line. We'd love to see it wherever you are. 0467 842 722. You can tell me, text me anytime this week, really. Just brighten my day. Show me how you're celebrating Christmas in the country, 0467-842-722. Let's get a little bit more serious right now, though, on the country. How should we treat animals? More importantly, how do you recognise that animals can think and feel whilst having a system where we care for them, breed them, eat them, use them for resources? And Where do you draw that line? That's what the Victorian government has been working on for a number of years. And finally, on Friday, a draft was released to review. Yes, late on Friday... The government released a plan to recognise animal sentience in its Animal Care and Protection Bill. 
Sentience is recognising that animals have the ability to feel, perceive and experience what happens to them in a negative or positive way. That's using their definitions from earlier drafts of this bill. The rules would also change how animal welfare is policed in Victoria, taking it from a reactive model where there needs to be a reasonable suspicion that an animal was being mistreated before intervening action was taken to a proactive system of monitoring and compliance, meaning you would have to prove you are treating animals well rather than being found that you were treating them poorly. The draft legislation was released by Agriculture Minister Ros Spence, who has been contacted for comment and is so far unavailable. The largest amount of animals under care in Victoria are under the care of farmers. Daniel Kuchinotta is the Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation, has been a part of the group and the reference committees uh, developing this legislation and can join you on the Country Hour. Welcome to the Country Hour. Is this another step in a long line of preparing the new animal care and protection laws, isn't it? It is one hell of a marathon, let me tell you. Um, I feel like this is about 75% of my life these days. This legislation has been released for consultation. What do you make of this legislation and what it says for the care of, of animals from Victoria's farmers? Yeah, so I'm probably in no better position than I was two weeks ago. Um, I feel like there's probably... No detail really in the piece of legislation. It was a slap in the face to come out on a Friday, a week really, into getting into the Christmas spirit. Um, We are now going through it with a fine tooth comb and getting our legal team at the Victorian Farmers Federation to really delve into it. Um, All the details will essentially be in regulation, which is now um, going to come out and be a process for essentially the next two years. So we really are talking about a marathon and a half. Um, And really with the amount of consultation and the briefings we got and the workshops I was part of, I honestly, I am in no better detail right now than I was two weeks ago. You sound quite disappointed about that, not only about what's in the plan, but also the, the timing of it, releasing it on a Friday afternoon in the lead up to Christmas. Yeah, I mean, there's just, like, there's so many vague words in the bill currently. And, again, like, the team are absolutely working on it today and they will work on it all week in the next couple of months. But, I mean, ad- like, adequate, proportionate, like, these are all subjective words and it really opens up the risk of animal rights groups and animal welfare groups coming in and telling farmers how to do their job through regulations. So right now it is just a subjective game of politics. Uh, the big feature of this legislation is to recognise animal sentience. Three options are laid out to do that under this legislation, whether uh, sentience is referred to in the objects of the Act, in the principles of the Act, or in the definition of animals as well. Uh, can can you describe what is on the line, I suppose, in, in, in the Farmers' Federation point of view for a definition of animal sentience in an Animal Welfare Act? Yeah, I'd say to you the the notion around sentience is probably less concerning for us as farmers and the Victorian Farmers Federation because we already know our animals think, they feel, they perceive. It's why we do what we do. It's why we have best practice already. It's why we're so great at husbandry because we already acknowledge that. Um, It's the whole reason this legislation or the bill is now coming into play and why we've turned it on its head really, like why we've gone from preventing cruelty to essentially um creating like duties of care and you know positive notions uh, we already acknowledge that as farmers 
I would say that's less concerning to us. Obviously, something we'll keep an eye on, but um, sentience isn't probably our biggest risk. I'd say it's how we do regulation over the next two years. That is where we'll start to go go through and find the fine-tooth comb of what it is around our specific animals, our specific duties to care, and that, that subjective no- notion that I'm talking about, like what is adequate? What is adequate to me as a farmer versus a different farmer versus an animal rights group? I don't think anyone today has woken up or on Friday afternoon for that matter was any clearer by reading that bill of what it is we're heading towards. The, the bill itself is is a framework and as you say it uses sort of subjective words in, in your words to describe what is okay and what is not but it doesn't have the the finer details of what what is in and what is out. Is that still to come in terms of the regulations of this bill and how it will be enforced? Yeah, so again, that's all the next two years worth of regulations. That's where we will develop those really um, finer details around what is adequate shelter, for argument's sake. Um, And I would say that because of this, you know, months and months of working together with different organisations, and we have already stated that they just simply did not have enough of the supply chain of agriculture being included, which makes a whole lot of sense now that we're literally no clear off on Friday afternoon. Um, But they've created a low level of trust, the government, and it's been exacerbated through these workshops. And we expect more at the Victorian Farmers Federation for from the government, not sending it out on a Friday morning or afternoon for that matter. No media release essentially when we got it. It was just like, here's something that just felt so blasé and it is just such an important piece of legislation and will impact agriculture so heavily. Just in terms of the framework that this legislation does provide, it does try and change how breaches of animal welfare by farmers and other members of the community is enforced rather than being a more reactive model uh, with work being undertaken as a response to a reasonable uh, suspicion about a breach of animal cruelty provisions to being more proactive monitoring with monitoring powers on how animals are being looked after and looking for breaches as well. Do you have concerns there? Yeah, and that's where I'd say to you the um, the legal team that will um, have come in at the Victorian Farmers Federation is really important. We really want to understand what would happen from that point of view and what what it means for a court of law. Like, do, is a farmer responsible here, there, or what? Like, what is adequate? What happens if that you know the sheep doesn't stand under the shelter that you provide? I mean, who, whose fault is that if that happens? So, and I mean that's just one very small, tiny example. But the truth is, we don't know, and that's the whole point. For this to be released now, whilst it still openly says the topics for further examination are definitions and key terms, emergency response powers, powers for authorised officers, compliance and enforcement tools and civil penalty options. That seems like there's still a lot on the table to discuss here. Yep, and the team are absolutely going through it with a fine-tooth comb, like I said, this morning, and I'll probably have a briefing later today. But right now, I mean... It just feels like a large-scale framework that we're just more confused about. We've got a number of questions around it, and rather than me pointing out any specific detail today, I'd say to you that right now our biggest problem is the fact that there's just no trust in this piece of legislation from the way the government's been behaving about it. None of these farmers or industries necessarily trust the government because they weren't necessarily invited to the table 
on a large scale, everything felt hush hush. I was under a data confidentiality for so long. And, you know, and we've allowed it to become such a political game. We're allowing animal rights groups, animal activist groups to be sitting at the same table and influence the way we do good animal husbandry. And that's the political game we're now playing. Has that been frustrating for you being under a deed of confidentiality, not being able to talk about legislation like this um, whilst you're trying to negotiate with the government in good faith? Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's we 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 ask that consultation would be expanded and not just within the VFF, not just with our commodity presidents, because we absolutely ask for that, but also through the supply chain, the way we did transport for animals, the way we, you know, livestock agents, our veterinarians and so on. Like we wanted that expanded and it wasn't. And look, I kind of understand now that the the bill has come out and it doesn't really have a whole lot in it. And I would I would expect now that all of these um, supply chain uh, groups are now included in consultation, especially around the regulation. I suspect that they will be. But, it, yeah, it does. It makes it really hard to, to essentially tell farmers that I promise I'm doing the best I absolutely can. And keeping in mind, it wasn't just, well, it was just me from a farmer level, but there were three staff always sitting with me and always gaining that information from the commodities and so on. But that's all lifted now. So I anticipate my phone will be ringing quite hot all the time for the next two years because it is literally my life to um, ensure that this piece of legislation is as little impact or little risk to our farmers moving forward. So for the next two years, literally every animal husbandry practice that farmers or transport operators or abattoirs or anybody who's working with an animal does is up for debate in the regulations under this new legislation. Yeah, so essentially that's where all the detail will be and that's the next two years and that is up to the department and the government to work out how they're going to do that because the last thing I want to see is that impacted by animal activist groups and the VFF will continue to ensure we're sitting at the table and we hold them to account where we need to because this will impact so many farmers' lives and it's our job to mitigate that risk. And I suppose the flip side of that is if as farmers and a farming group want to say your farmers are the best in the world at what they do and you have the most modern practices as well, going through a process like this could be a benefit to you as well, yeah? Yeah, sure. As long as it's not a political game of animal activists necessarily telling us how we're doing animal husbandry because science is still critical in this while we absolutely do this for some notion of consumer expectation and the way that we um change our best practices over time there still is a there's still a level of realistic expectation that farmers are juggling a number of things so is it the animal shelter that is more important is it the biosecurity is it the welfare from what what aspect are you actually talking about? And this is what I'm saying. Those regulations need to be really clear for us because currently I can't even tell you what is necessarily going to change or if anything is it going to change. That's the other thing. So we're, it's two years, Warwick. The truth is, is we are going to spend the next two years doing this as a industry and hopefully along with a coalition of supply chain. Danielle Kuchinata, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Thanks, Warwick. Have a good afternoon. That's Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation has been in the room for a lot of these negotiations around this legislation. Danielle Kuchinata there 
uh, speaking to you about where these legislation is up to. As I said, we've put a request in with Victorian Agriculture Minister Ros Spence. We'll let you know if we hear anything back in the coming days. If you'd like to have your say, you can certainly send us a text 0467842722. I'm saying... Uh, the worst treatment of animals by humans is the racing industry. Well, that would be covered under this new legislation. So industries like that, not only animal agriculture, but things like the racing industry under this legislation, anonymous texter. Uh, when I look at how Victorian authorities treated humans during COVID lockdowns, how they, they think they can tell us how to treat animals, says another text. We'll take that as a comment. Uh, legislation. This legislation, Warwick, opens up farmers to intense attacks by animal welfare groups, a proactive policing system basically means activists have yet another weapon to use against farmers. It feels to me that the Victorian government is actively trying to ban farmer farming. Wonder if they'll keep that up when the state's out of food, says this text. And Warwick, I wonder if the new animal welfare legislation provides guidance to make vets available after hours to provide emergency assistance to farmers when required. It's sadly lacking at present, says Chris. You can keep the text coming, 0467 842 But we'll leave, well, that legislation will leave the state indeed at the moment. Talk about a massive issue facing agriculture in the far north of the country right now. Torrential rain has caused rivers to break their banks, roads to be cut, and leaving people isolated with dwindling food, water, and fuel supplies in far north Queensland. As Lucy Cooper reports on the floods and what it's meaning for agriculture. The rain has been relentless, and whilst it's called the wet tropics, this event has been unprecedented. Professor Jonathan Knott said it's been record-breaking. The gauged record uh, started in 1915 on the Barron River. Uh, the main gauge is at Myola, which is near Karanda, and this flood uh, is the largest recorded flood that we've ever had in Cairns, and it's larger by a substantial amount. Um, so it's it's a very, very serious flood. The rainfall totals have been phenomenal. 21 gauges already that have received over a metre of rain within the last seven days. And over the last 24 hours, the totals are Cairns, 307 millimetres. And north of Cairns, Black Mountain, 640. Yandel, 701. Beds, 870. Dewan, 829. Daintree, 637, Mossman, 621, Port Douglas, 389, and Beesbike, 656 millimetres in the past 24 hours. When Tropical Cyclone Jasper passed through far north Queensland last week, the Category 2 system brought down trees and damaged properties, but left far less of a mark on farms compared to Yazi in 2011 and Larry in 2006. But the subsequent flooding has been devastating. In the Atherton Tablelands, a region west of Cairns known for its incredible produce, from coffee to mangoes, bananas, sugar and avocados, many farmers have sought higher ground. Well, I'm looking at a lake. There's lots of lakes around our place and I'm at my neighbour, the the Golden Drop Winery. And um, they're higher ground and um, it's a bit of a family tradition. Every 20, 20 or so years or 25 years we end up here when this sort of event occurs so um, just big lakes it's just a massive amount of water slowly surrounding us. Joe Morrow is a mango farmer and chair of Far North Queensland Growers Association based at Baibura just outside of Mariba. A warmer than average winter resulted in fewer mangoes this year and now 
Barely any will be making it to supermarket shelves. The unfortunate thing is where I did have some mangoes, um, there's a big percentage of them will be underwater. Uh, and if it breaks bank, probably uh, what KPs I had are probably going to go. Um, and um, and probably some impact on some of on my um, palmers and laborers. So I probably end up losing... Um, I, at, at the end, I probably would have had a reasonable crop of the late varieties, but I reckon I'll lose at least 70%, and that's just a wild guess at this point in time, but it won't be less than that. Further south of Joe, Nick Tromph, a stud beef cattle farmer, has properties around Tinaroo Dam, which spilled late yesterday afternoon. It's extraordinary. At 7 o'clock last Thursday, Tinaroo Dam was sitting at 71% full, about 330,000 megalitres, and not rising because the rivers were fairly benign. Today, it's at 107% or 449,000 megalitres. So we've seen a 50% increase in four days, which is unprecedented. Mr Trump has had almost a metre of rain. The rainfall has not just cut off roads, it's destroyed them. I think one of the major things for the region, for agriculture and the region more broadly, is the damage to road infrastructure will be unprecedented. The only B-double road access from the coast to the Atherton Tablelands, the Palmerston Highway, looks like it's been hit by an earthquake. It has had a landslip and been split down the middle and dropped about a metre. So I would imagine that's going to take weeks, if not months, to repair and get it safe. And as we speak, the only road uh, I believe that you can access the Tablelands is uh, from the west. Um, I think that's still open, but all the roads to the coast are closed um, and Cairns itself is isolated and many other communities are isolated. So, um, yeah, the road damage, talking to some of the local mayors yesterday, uh, the water's just coming up through the road surfaces and and uh, it's going to be so extensive and the federal and state governments have already indicated they're going to have to cough up a lot of money to um, undertake repairs that could take many months, particularly if the wet season continues and we can't get on those roads to repair them. Residents have had to evacuate their homes as rivers broke their banks. In the Aboriginal Shire of Woodrow Woodrow in the Cape York region, the entire community is set to be evacuated. Resident Matt Nichols said it's a dire situation for residents, with many trapped on roofs. It's a disaster at the moment, to be honest. We've got um, the Bloomfield River. So if people don't know where Woodrow Woodrow is, it's north of the Daintree, um, south of Cooktown. Um, and it's a small Aboriginal community, about 400 people. So um, they were well prepared for the cyclone. Um, and obviously the eye of Cyclone Jasper crossed Woodrow Woodrow um, on Wednesday night. Um, it didn't actually do much damage, but the rainfall has been devastating. And, and last night, the, the Bloomfield River burst its banks and um, a number of houses are underwater. And we've got a lot of residents on roofs right now and um, desperately waiting to be evacuated. In his first four days as the new Premier of Queensland, Stephen Miles has had his new role dominated by this devastating situation. Well, we see a lot of natural disasters. This is just about the worst I can, I can remember. I've been talking to Cairns locals on the ground uh, through yesterday and through the night, and they say they've never seen anything like it. And for that, for someone from far north Queensland to say that, that's, that's really saying something. There is good news, though. Falls are expected to ease by this afternoon. But then farmers must turn to the mammoth job of cleaning up. For Gina Galati, who has a citrus orchard on the edge of the Barren River in the far north, she's only just beginning to assess damage. Look, ever since this event started, we've received over a thousand mil of rain. From just a shed perspective, um, you know, we've got three pallet stackers, all the motors were underground, so they're pretty much all gone. We've got, you know, 450 bin gas room, that compressor is gone for that. Um, yeah, so 
once 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 we can get a better assessment, we'll be able to to fully comprehend what we've lost. A mammoth 12 to 18 months lie ahead for farmers in the far north. But we've lost our livelihood too for, you know, maybe six to 12 months. We don't know what what um, full effect or what, what damage this has done to the trees um, until everything starts calming down a bit. But this is our livelihood. You know, if you've got a job, well, you go. If you can, you'll go back to work if that shop's open on Monday. But you can't do that here. That's Gina Galati, a citrus farmer in far north Queensland, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. Some of those rainfall figures are just insane. A metre of rain in five days, up to two metres in some areas. Absolutely unfathomable when you're used to southern agriculture. Amazing to see, and the pictures aren't much better if you're near an ABC television over the next few days or indeed online. Uh, Check it out, uh, even if it isn't pretty viewing. Uh, We've got the weather report on the way for you here on the Country Hour. Right now, though, let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Beck Simmons today. Good afternoon, Beck. Good afternoon, Was. A doctor who treated patients in Redcliffe near Mildura has been permitted by the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal to continue practising medicine despite facing sexual assault charges. Dr Emil Joku was charged with four counts of sexual assault and two counts of assault with intent to commit a sexual offence in June this year. He was subsequently suspended by the Medical Board of Australia, but VCAT overruled the decision after Dr Joku told them he didn't believe he posed a risk to public health and safety. The brother of two women killed by a cement truck at a Horsham intersection in October 2021 says a lack of investment into bypasses is dangerous and he does not blame Danny Kennison, who was driving the truck. In April, the 45-year-old was sentenced to a community corrections order and 300 hours of unpaid service. And this month, that sentence was unsuccessfully appealed by prosecutors who were seeking a harsher punishment. A panel of justices affirmed the county court's ruling that Kennison's cooperation was a valid mitigating circumstance in the offence of dangerous driving causing death. The Ballarat Gold Mine will leave administration this week, which the Australian Workers' Union says will lead to redundancies at the major Western Victorian employer. The ABC understands administrators Hall Chadwick accepted a vote to sell the mine to Singaporean registered company Thompson two weeks ago, after Balmain Gold went into administration in March. The union says the new owner has already begun consultation with employees after a review of operations. The Water Police squad will be out in force this summer, conducting breath tests alongside licence and safety checks. Police will patrol boating hotspots, including the Mornington Peninsula, Lake Hume, Lake Epilock, Lake Eildon, Lake Oyen and Wilson's Promontory. Business Wodonga says retailers along the border have been enjoying a bumper festive season this year with one week to go before Christmas. The organisation's CEO says some businesses are reporting their best pre-Christmas period in years following the recent COVID and flood impacted sales periods and it's a pleasant surprise. For more ABC news at any time, visit abc.net.au forward slash news or you can download the ABC Listen app. Thanks very much for that. Beck Simmons there with regional news headlines. You're listening to The Country Hour. We'll cross the Weather Bureau in just a second. We have been looking at the new draft animal welfare legislation on the program today. Tom at Winslow says, interesting that our urban 
centric government has included anti-farming interest groups in the process of developing legislation that's so skewed against farmers. But I suppose North Fitzroy is a lot closer to Spring Street than a lot of farming communities. I'm very worried where this is going to end, says Tom at Winslow. Although this says the same old from the NFF and VFF. In this case, it was the VFF, just to clarify. We're being attacked why should we all be regulated when it's just a couple of rogue operators? The same excuses a couple of days ago regarding seasonal workers. Self-regulation doesn't work because you won't bloody self-regulate. The biggest uh, VFF members are the biggest rogues. I can point to three huge concerns in my area. Supplying major supermarkets who still use dodgy contractors, says this text 0467842722. If you want to have your say, Phillip's on the line from Dalesford. G'day, Philip. G'day, uh, Warwick. How are you? Yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, look, uh, what about fl- um, fly spray? I mean, that's pretty cruel on animals, isn't it? Do we ban that too? So I suppose just to take your somewhat facetious comment, Philip, if I, if I can put it that way, um, you worry sort of where something like this leads, right? We, that- we, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, you know, the... Um, Fly spray kills a lot of animals, not cute and cuddly, but we kind of forget about them, don't we? So um, so if it's good for one thing, it's probably good for another thing, isn't it? That's an interesting view to fall, Well, an interesting hole to fall down, Philip. Thank you very much for that, 1300-977-222. If you want to call, let's go to the Bureau, though. Find out what's happening weather-wise around your state. Rather cloudy outside my window in Shepparton today. Brian McPherson can tell us more, though. Senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Brian. Good afternoon, Warwick. How's it looking around Victoria today? Yeah, you're right. Uh, cloudy across all of the state, but fairly warm with some northerly winds. Um, and that cloud's you know, a fair way up off the ground. So seeing like a few sprinkles here and there out of it, but really not much hitting the ground. Um, a mill or so has fallen since 9am over some locations over in the southwest of the state this morning, but also not expecting too much for the rest of the day. Uh, might hear the odd rumble, particularly over western parts. Um, of the state this afternoon and overnight in that cloud band. Um, But the main change comes through the state later today, so cooler southwesterly winds pushing through into the southwest uh, during this afternoon and then reaching sort of around that Melbourne-Mildura line um, closer to midnight before pushing through the eastern half of the state tomorrow morning. Um, Not a lot of rainfall with the, the actual change itself, so it's still mostly from middle level driven through this cloud band. Um, but, you know, a shower or two, I guess the best we can really hope for is like up to five mils in the southwest um, with this change and generally sort of a zero to one mils across um, most of the rest of the state today with that. Well, yeah, so um, beyond that then, what are we looking at? Yeah, after this uh, change comes through tonight, we're in a cooler southerly winds with a high-pressure system sitting over the uh, bite for a few days. Uh, those southerly winds turn southeasterly pretty quickly and the showers, so showers generally on and south of the ranges um, um, in the east tomorrow, but then generally just contracting towards Gippsland for Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, but fairly fairly light for those days as well. But uh, cool than average temperatures for the second half of the week uh, before we go into a slightly more confused pattern on Saturday. Um, <laughs> uh, tro- yeah, it's a, there's not a strong pressure gradient driving this one. So just um, even though it's relatively, relatively light winds, we get a, a bit more humid um, easterly air pushing in, uh, increases the chance of some 
showers and, and storms across the whole of the state. So a better chance for rainfall, but still nothing too dramatic on, on, on that day. Um, and that trough moves across. And then we're in Sutherlands again uh, into the second half of the weekend and Christmas Day. Yeah, well, this is our early look at Christmas Day now, isn't it? What's that looking like? Yeah, look, it is. Um, there's a bit of uncertainty as to rainfall, but at this stage, it's looking like south or southeasterly winds across the state. And with those southerly winds, that tends to mean um, cloud and maybe the odd shower on and south of the ranges and dry in the north. Um, so, yeah, cooler than average uh, for this time of year is what we're looking at at this stage. Maybe some showers in the south, but more likely over towards Gippsland rather than the, the western parts and probably dry and, and cool in the north. Not a bad day for roasting. That's what I'm hearing right there. That's um, exactly what I'm thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you mentioned that there are those showers really over the, the much of, of the week, but as far as rainfall figures go, it doesn't sound like it's going to be significant. Yeah, no, it's not looking that uh, not looking that interesting at all. I mean, eastern parts of the state will get a little bit tomorrow as this system through, but like I said, most of it's middle-level driven, so not, not heaps hitting the ground. Uh, really, the best chance is Saturday when we get a bit more humidity and a bit more instability, um, particularly like over the northern parts. We might see some, some storms up over the northern half of the state on Saturday, so a better chance of getting some falls, but still a bit hit and miss because it will be uh, driven convectively, which means, you know, showers and storms rather than rain itself. And anything in the the warnings bracket we should either be keeping an eye out for or sitting there at the moment? No, at this stage, we've just got some uh, some marine winds increasing tomorrow. Um, and other than that, we've got some high fire dangers up in the northwest and northern parts of the state today, uh, but nothing to, nothing looking extreme at this stage. Brian, thanks very much for the update. Not a problem. Brian McPherson there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast for, well, not only today, but in the lead-up to Christmas now. That's how close we're getting. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's talk water now here on the Country Hour. Is the media doing a good enough job of covering contentious issues like water shortages and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan? That's the subject of a report by communications company SWADA, which analysed 68 articles on water issues by Australia's 10 most prominent commercial media outlets, noting here that the ABC isn't included in the report. Elsie Kennedy asked SWADA Government Relations and Policy Advisor John Fraser why he thought the report was necessary. We noticed that there were some pretty big shortcomings in the national debate about water. From there, we analysed uh, online water news, and you're right, ABC wasn't included. It was the major commercial um, media outlets, the top 10. We looked at what was being said, and then we offered some commentary on what's missing from the debate and the implications uh, we think of this moving forward. You've looked at media coverage of competing interests for water, particularly around the Murray-Darling Basin, and you found media coverage has been mired in politics rather than focusing on science. Out of the 17 articles you looked at covering the Murray-Darling Basin plan, all of them focused on political perspectives. Why do you think that's a problem? Well, look, I think water is and always has been and probably always will be a political issue in Australia. It matters a lot to a lot of people um, and there will always be tension between competing interests. But what we've found through our analysis that is that often in the stories that make it into the papers, the voices that dominate debate are not always representative of the many stakeholders that are impacted by decisions about water. Often it's the best organised, the best resources, the best resourced voices 
the politicians and those with the most to gain or lose who set debate and dominate the voices in the media coverage. Of course, these, these groups have a right to be heard, but it's often the others, the, the members of local communities, farmers who don't rely on irrigated water, environmental advocates, indigenous water users. Um, these are often the groups that don't have their views represented in, in mainstream media coverage of um, issues in the Murray-Darling Basin and in other regional areas. Um, we think that the water is too important a topic um, for Australians to sort of be missing a large part of the picture. Um, our view is that politics has a role in the debate, will continue to have a role in the debate, but it cannot be the debate in and of itself. So um, our recommendations are, are around ensuring that all voices get heard, even the quieter voices, so that water news and policy can be shaped around what Australians need in a way that uses the full breadth of Australians um, and their ingenuity and knowledge. Another finding from the report is that issues around water security are underreported. In particular, you've pointed out that we should be talking about planning for water shortages rather than just reporting them once they are in place. Why is that important? Well, I think good policy comes from good thinking. And if good thinking happens during periods of crisis, um, that's a rarity. Often what happens is knee-jerk responses during these periods. And I think that in some ways, water policy has been defined by that over a number of years. Um, what's missing, we think, initially from the debate is objective data about the scale and severity of problems that can inform debate. Um, so that's particularly problematic in, in remote areas. In the media coverage, often the, the major mastheads, particularly the state-based ones, will focus on urban areas, often at the expense of, of regional areas. That may be a commercial decision. Maybe that's where most of their readers are. Um, but what it means is there's a whole part of the picture that's not being told, and often it's where the impacts of water issues are most acutely felt. The issue we pinpointed in the report was around water restrictions, and that's a good kind of case in point here, that often the coverage when water restrictions are put in place is about what water users can't do. It's not often about what could have been done to avoid this situation. It's not about what the cost, environmental, economic, social costs of water restrictions are. It's often just about what we can't do right now. And so what we'd like to see in, in the media coverage is a bit more of a step back to take an analysis of what has led to this point and for the next drought, which is inevitable in Australia, what can we do differently to ensure that we're better prepared that time around? That's Suada Government Relations and Policy Advisor John Fraser speaking there to Elsie Kennedy. Plenty of your texts coming in, 0467-842-722. We've been talking animal welfare draft legislation in Victoria. Many of you almost are so proving why it would be difficult for a government to draft legislation like this by talking about individual cases of this, like texts like this. Koalas are protected unless they're in the road of a solar panel. This one saying uh, one of the worst examples of animal welfare I've seen is uh, myxomatosis in rabbits. Will they be charged for that? Uh, what? How will shooting brumbies by the state government fit under this legislation? Hypocrites, says another text message here. Uh, welcome back, Warwick. Uh, maybe we could have a committee to look at the welfare of all farmers. Or don't they think farmer welfare is that important, says the Marawini sheep carer slash farmer on the text message as well. And it goes on and on and that. Plenty of text messages coming in uh, with your thoughts 
on uh, well, where animal welfare legislation should draw a line. And that's the interesting thing of deciding on a framework at the moment and also how things like sentience work in on that. We discussed that earlier in the program and also how they want the legislation to look more proactively about you proving you are uh, looking after animals well rather than being found reactive, being found, which is what the previous legislation was. They, they had, there had to be suspicion of you doing the wrong thing. Uh, before authorities investigated. 0467-842-722 if you want to send us a text message. Let's talk food production. Though rice producer Sunrise Group has delivered a $30 million profit to shareholders on Friday after its third consecutive bumper crop. Sunrise Group CEO Paul Serra said the result came from the company's success selling Australian rice into more international markets. We've had a, a really strong start to the year. We've seen really strong expansion in our international markets, you know, predominantly in the Middle East and the US, and that's been driven off the back of really strong good branded positions, route to market strengths, and, and obviously being able to source rice, not just from Australia, but from our international sourcing division based in Singapore. That's delivered that result across the group. Last summer, there were some issues. People weren't able to get all the crops in that they wanted because of widespread flooding in Victoria and New South Wales. How much of an impact did that have? It certainly impacted the crop year 23, um, you know, overall size. But having said that, we still delivered a a really strong crop from Australia at around 500,000 paddy tonnes. So it would have, you know, had the potential of being higher than that. But but it was certainly still a really strong crop and enabled us to have a good amount of, of Australian rice to sell into those premium markets around the world. Mm. You did deliver a $30 million profit today. How will you be investing that money? Firstly, we'll, we'll look to return a, a good return in, in dividends to our, to our B-class investors, but we'll also look to how we can use this to further expand our international and domestic presence. And so we'll, we'll look to, to both organic ways to grow that. You know, we also have a well-developed pipeline of strategic uh, inorganic opportunities as well. And looking forward to this summer, what are things looking like at this stage? Yeah, it's, it's been a it's been an unusual start to the to the crop year. Um, I think there's been you know quite a bit of rain as well as some cold weather around. The crop, though, in in general for for crop year 24 is looking really positive. As we referenced this morning, we do expect that to be larger than the crop year uh, 23, which is a, a fantastic outcome. But obviously, we're very early in the season and. Uh, as we all know, um, different climate events can impact. But but as we as we sit today, we're we're looking at a really strong position. That was Sunrise Group CEO Paul Serra. Maramai Rice Grower and Rice Growers Association of Australia President Peter Herman says he and other growers have finished planting their crops for the year, and they're looking ahead to a good season. So the rice crops have established. Our planting's completed. We're ahead of last year in that way, where we were planting right up till Christmas, and the warmer temperatures. Uh, mean the crops are really kicking away now. Fantastic. Have people managed to get in all of the crops that they wanted to? I know last year there were issues. People weren't able to plant all of the hectares they were hoping for because it was so wet. How much crop's gone in this year, do you know? Um, we don't know the exact figures, but the um, it's safe to say uh, all of the crop area that people intended to plant early on, they've, been able, they've had the opportunity to plant. So this year's uh, warm climate, overall and um, a little bit of rain here and there has worked out fine for our planting windows. Sunrise this morning said they've set a uh, price of $410 a tonne. How does, what does that mean for growers? Is that, does that give you a lot of options to invest in your crop this season? Is 410 enough? Well, you'd ask 
you know, some people would say it's never enough. Most people might say that because we're always striving for, for everything we can. But this year, that price, that indication has been enough to, to motivate people to plant a crop of, well, anyone would guess around half a million tonnes. So hopefully that's, that's everyone gets what they need and it's, it's around about that. That's Maramai Rice Grower and Rice Growers Association of Australia President Peter Herman ending that report from Elsie Kennedy. You're listening to The Country Out. Just before we get into markets, lots of you have had your say today, particularly on animal welfare laws and where they're at. That's going to be a conversation going for a long time. So March the 8th is when the consultation shuts on that proposed animal care and protection bill that has been released from the Victorian government uh, will continue to ask either to speak to the Victorian Agriculture Minister or departmental officials in the meantime. And obviously there will be a whole lot more to come in terms of uh, the discussion about what is ruled in and what out and ruled out in terms of accepted animal welfare practices in the meantime as well. Did want to note this on the text line just before we go to, to uh, markets, though, and that is I did ask you at the start of the program, if you have a cracking bit of Christmas cheer going on on your property somewhere in Victoria, not only today, for the whole lead up to Christmas, uh, would love you to send it through, 0467 842 And I love this text that's come in. It doesn't have a name on it. You should chuck a name on it. Uh, it's of Chester, Ellie and Gus getting into the Christmas spirit at Springfield. The photo is incredible. There's three Kelpies, black and tan Kelpies, or brown and t- chocolate and tan t- Kelpies, really, isn't it? And uh, beautiful Christmas hats on, looking absolutely chuffed whilst they're sitting on top of a hay bale. It's absolutely made my day. Thank you for sending that through as well. You can keep coming all this week. Let's uh, also have a little bit of fun on our text line as well, right? Uh, I'll be back with you all this week on The Country, as will the markets when they're on. We'll start with the sheep and lambs to kick things off market-wise today, and that means Bendigo. On a Monday, let's head to Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Smaller yarding of 13,650 lambs and just 2,500 sheep for the last sale of the year. Farmers got into the Christmas spirit and store and light lambs are up to $8 dearer. The main run of small crossbred lambs to the paddock, mostly $60 to $88 to average $70. They had strong competition from MK bag lamb buyers who paid from $80 to $102 for 16 to 18 kilo little lambs. But the trade and export lamb buyers went a bit Christmas scroogey and processing lambs were often $5 to $10 off on plain quality. Sheep are also $5 to $10 cheaper. Heavy shorn lambs, 160 to 210, with one pen of exports out to a top of 220. The best heavy trades, 24 to 26 kilos, 150 to 166 dollars. In the sucker run, a few heavy pens, 170 to a top of 218. The general run of trades, 22 to 24 kilos, 130 to 142 dollars. On a carcass basis, the best lambs were tracking at 620 to 680 cents. That's it from Bendigo until January 8 next year. Jenny Kelly for MLA. There you go, January 8. Lock that into the diary. And I love the technical terms there, Jenny, of Christmas spirit and Christmas scroogey in the last market for 2023 at Bendigo. Let's uh, continue along and get into the spirit. We'll see if there's been some Christmas spirit around the cattle markets now. We'll go to Packenham first and Brendan Fletcher there. G'day, Brendan. 
G'day, Warwick numbers decreased to 700, that's 860 fewer with a smaller group of buyers operating more selectively in a cheaper market. Quality was limited in the grown while there was a reasonable selection of vealers. Trade cattle eased 15 to 30 cents, grown steers and bullocks lost 30 with manufacturing lots following suit. Cows slipped 15 to 30, with processors loading cows for an estimated 373 to 392 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls eased 4 cents. Vealers sold from 184 to 296, yearling trade steers 220 to 270, the heifer portion 199 to 270. Ground steers and bullocks 208 to 232, heavy Friesian steers 172 to 198, crossbreds 192 to 220. Most light and medium weight cows 125 to 190, heavyweights 170 to 210, heavy bulls 175 to 219. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting from Pakenham and wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you too, Brendan. Brendan Fletcher there at Pakenham. Let's move along to Mortlake and the cattle markets there and we'll see if Chris Agnew's all Christmas spirit here, right? Take it away, Chris. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded 7.54 head at Mortlake this week, a considerable decrease of some 2,157 on last week's market. The cattle on offer still displayed good quality, a very small field of buyers were in attendance in a very subdued market. Grown cattle and manufacturing steers lost 10 cents overall. Trade cattle in an erratic market were cheaper, depending on quality by 15 to 20 cents, and the cows were softer by 50 cents a kilo over most categories. This week, a small number of vealers on offer they made up to a top of 274 trade steers and heifers made between 200 and 264 grown cattle topped at 260 manufacturing steers sold up to 188 cents heavy beef cows sold from 168 to 195 with the medium weights between 140 and 165 dairy cows were generally making between 144 and 180 cents May take this time to wish you and your listeners a very Merry Christmas, a happy and safe and prosperous New Year. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Never doubted you'd be in the Christmas spirit there, Chris Agnew. Thank you very much for that and a Merry Christmas to you as well. Let's go to Wagga and Graham Richard to round out the markets on a Monday. Good afternoon. Numbers fell for the last sale to 2,000 head. The quality was fair to good with a big run of yearlings. Feeders purchased most with some processes not operating. Around 170 cows were offered. Growing steers were limited and there was a small run of prime grown heifers. The market eased with less competition, slipping 20 to 30 cents. The few weaner steers, 296 to 340, heifers, 268 to 278. The medium weight feeder steers, 212 to 292, restocking steers out to 313. Heavy feeders sold to 278. The medium weight feeder heifers, 208 to 236, heavy weights, 180 to 234. The heavy trade cattle, 204 to 240, prime grown steers and bullocks, 190 to 235, and grown heifers, 180 to 212. Heavy cows, 175 to 215. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks very much for that, Graham. And that's about it for the country out today. I seriously mean it, though. If you have some great photos of Christmas spirit out on a property this week, would love to see them. Keep the text coming, 0467 842 722. Or you can email us, countryhour at abc.net.au. Shout out again to Chester, Ellie and Gus, the happiest looking working dogs in regional Victoria at Springfield who look like they're... Right in the Christmas spirit this this lunchtime. Have a great afternoon. We'll be back with you again tomorrow. <laughs>